tonight I intended to make a little presentation, exactly as last week I made a presentation so you can understand the peculiar circumstances of the Orthodox Easter celebrations, meditations, and especially this holy light meditation. Um, if you have looked in the calendar, you've seen that this week we have another Easter. It is the third Easter celebration acknowledged here in Agama's timetable. And it is uh, having a very strange name. Its complete name is the Easter of the Gentle Ones. Not of the Gentiles, but of the Gentle Ones. This requires some explanations which will lead us to the well-known subject of Shambhala. And I'm going to tangently approach that as well. As I said the last week, the Christian mystics especially, because you can't expect the other religions to concur with that. Uh, the Christian mystics have considered Easter a great spiritual victory. Because in this spiritual victory, uh, an avatar called Jesus came to earth with a planetary mission to rock the history of the earth through self-sacrifice of a very peculiar type, and he actually did it. And because he succeeded 100% in it, this was a victory of the spirit. It was an injection of spirit from the divine into the history, into the humanity. And... Um, this, this is celebrated as a victory. Well, um, you would expect that the people of Shambhala, and I'm going to come back to that name later, at least half of you know exactly what that means, and half of you may have heard about it obliquely. The people of Shambhala know about this celebration. They are knowledgeable of the person of Jesus before Jesus was born, so that the three mages came to Bethlehem to witness the birth of the Christ and to acknowledge it, to confirm it. And thus, um, Shambhala, knowing about this mission of Christ and what it meant spiritually for the planet Earth, then Shambhala celebrates it. For Shambhala, it's also a joy, exactly as I quoted last Sunday, from John Chrysostomus, from a saint of Christianity, who says, Let all those who are devout lovers of God rejoice today. They meant on Easter. This is a day of rejoicing. It's a day of spiritual celebration. And thus, of course, some Shambhala, the people of Shambhala, they do celebrate. But so great is their spiritual ardor, these people, not being in the physical body, are freed from this resistance of the physical body, in the meaning that even Paul, the Apostle of Christ, understanding the difference between our aspiration, between what we are trying to do spiritually, and what we actually get to do in the daily life, he said the famous sentence that the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Like there are, even in this room, people who, if they could, 
they would do spiritual practice 10, 12, 16, whatever, even 24 hours per day, who are entirely committed, at least that's how they feel it in their heart and in their mind, they are entirely committed to the spiritual ideal and who consider that there is no time to waste. Since you are in this condition now in a human body on planet Earth, why dilly-dally? Why postpone? Why procrastinate? Why not? At least if you understood the truth, then the conclusion is very simple. And yet, how many people do actually do what a Milarepa did or what a Shankaracharya did, like exemplary spiritual practitioners did? Very few. Why? Because we all dream to be like Milarepa, but in practice very few people succeed because there is an obstacle. That obstacle, Paul has called it the flesh, and in a more philosophical, metaphysical way, we can simply call it the entropy. The human being has a tamasic, lazy, sometimes the monkey mind creates distraction, and there are lots and lots of factors which make that many people start with a dream of doing what Milarepa did, and five years later, they discover that the shoes of Milarepa are way, way too big in the real world. And this obstacle of the fact that the human being, being here on this planet in a body, has to carry this resistance on their shoulders, and very few people can run with this heavy weight on their shoulders. Most people in spirituality crawl instead of running because of the resistance given by the body, mind, and other factors. And uh, the people of Shambhala, they don't have this resistance, both because they have surpassed the certain threshold in their practice, and also because they are in a world where they do not have to carry the limitations of the physical body. And then, this being said, the people of Shambhala, every time when there are opportunities, every time when there are big spiritual events, they work for it. Like they don't feel laziness or boredom or distraction from the monkey mind. They are there on the barricades. For them, they are really committed to what they do. And because of this, as Easter happens, either we are talking about the Catholic one or about the Orthodox one, Shambhala at that time is meditating. Meditating because many events are a mixture of energies. Like, for example, on Easter, many people have spiritual veneration to the Christ and aspiration, but also think about how many pigs and turkeys and lambs and things they are slaughtering, apparently in honor of the Christ. No, and you can be sure that Jesus is not happy that tens of millions of animals are being slaughtered with the excuse that they want to venerate Jesus, but actually the reality is that they want to stuff their faces and their stomachs. And thus, uh, an event like Easter contains a strange mixture of energies, some mm -hmm. of spiritual veneration and also a lot of uh, negative energies produced by humanity, under the excuse of a spiritual event. And of course, Shambhala in those days 
filters such things, meditates, tries to burn the negative energies to sublime them, tries to burn the negative karma which results from it, because part of this negative karma is actually accumulated with, uh, at least partially, with some goodwill, and because of this, Shambhala is doing a lot of spiritual works. And then, the traditions of Europe, this is a tradition which is European, and partly Russian, in some parts of the Russian Christianity, Russia being uh, geographically part of Europe, at least the western part of Russia being there, and uh, uh, there exist traditions according to which the different folk traditions, and it's not only an orthodox tradition, it exists in the western Christianity as well, uh, they simply said that the protectors of humanity, the great protectors of humanity, those that have no sleep and those that have no rest, those that are spiritually active, indeed, they spend so much of their time in meditation and karmic processes, burning karma on Easter. But then, of course, there is this thing that Easter, every spiritual being should uh, celebrate because it is a reason of celebration. If the resurrection of Christ would not have happened 2,000 years ago, the history of the earth would have been completely different, and most of the metaphysicians believe it would have been considerably lower, considerably worse than it has been. So, the people of Shambhala, knowing this, of course, they want to celebrate, only that they can't celebrate at that time because they have their hands busy. And thus, apparently, the folk traditions, people in the folklore, and these things are very strange because they come from fairy tales, they come from people that had visions, from people in the folklore that were endowed with clairvoyance. They are residues of metaphysical traditions of the old days, which were stating such things. But anyhow, it remained like a trace in the collective subconscious mind and in the folklore that the spiritual protectors of mankind, they celebrate a week later. They celebrate seven days later, when the wave has passed, then they can afford to loosen a little bit, to relax a little bit, to let go a little bit, <coughs> and they celebrate. And that's why there exists a pan-European tradition, which says that the, the superior unknown, the gentle ones, they celebrate the Sunday after Easter. And that's why that was called the Easter of the Gentle Ones. They are nicknamed the Gentle Ones, and uh, in some mystical traditions of the West, they are also called superiores ignotes in Latin, which means unknown superiors. Superior beings, like they are acknowledged that these are not human beings anymore, these are above the human level, and unknown because they practice an almost total discretion. Various mystical traditions from Europe one of them on Mount Athos, for example, in Greece, and others, they claim that this SI, superior, superiores ignotes, that these gentle ones, they are called gentle ones, obviously, because of the practice of ahimsa, because of the practice of compassion, because of the very spiritual nature of these beings, um, 
they have been encountered, or at least the residues of them, marks of them, have been encountered in high mountains. It's exactly, we are being told that Shambhala, being this organization, being this place of the enlightened beings, being this island of enlightenment, of immortality, of peace, of spirituality, and being a subtle world, nevertheless has some interfaces with the earth. That means if we evaluate, and that's a pretty fair evaluation, that Shambhala is a place where we find between 100,000 to 150,000 Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, all the saints, yogis, seers, sages, all of them from all the religions and traditions which have lived on the face of this earth for the last 6,000 years, 20,000 years, whatever it is, so a whole group of them, uh, realistically evaluated by some clairvoyants to somewhere between 100 to 150,000, so it's not a number out of the top of the head. It exists, there exist evaluations in mystical texts. And this number of enlightened beings, some of them are enlightened beings without paranormal powers of the mind, like very spiritual but not having developed any paranormal abilities. I know that many people don't understand this point, which we try to explain repeatedly in many of our workshops, especially in the metaphysical workshop, which comes this summer. So if you want to understand uh, the, the data of spirituality, the practices, the exact spirit of it, uh, sooner or later you will have to join this workshop, which is... Um, perhaps the next thing immediately after our courses, like there are the courses, and then the metaphysical workshop. Without the metaphysical workshop, we feel that people still don't understand lots of spiritual fundamentals. So, as I said, uh, therefore, these um, enlightened beings, some of them, they have paranormal abilities, but people believe generally that every enlightened being must have paranormal abilities to demonstrate that they are truly spiritual, which is completely untrue. And one of the typical quotes which I give for it is coming from the great teacher, which was Ramana Maharishi. Ramana Maharishi, who is a, an inspirer of the Hridaya Yoga and who is a very, very spiritual teacher, a very enlightened spiritual teacher, of the 20th century India, Ramana Maharishi confessed very clearly that he did not possess absolutely any spiritual paranormal ability, or as they are called in Sanskrit, siddhis, paranormal powers. People ask him, in, there's a quote which I am always giving, people ask him in one of his interviews, he didn't write books, but a lot of interviews of him were preserved, and one of them says, some, some of his Hindu disciples say, Sir, is it true that some yogis or some people have the capacity to see dead spirits, the souls of the dead, just as we see each other physically, and to address them, to talk to them, to communicate with them, just like this? Uh, referring to this sixth sense, to this clairvoyance on Ajna Chakra. And Ramana Maharishi, in a very simple way, he answered. He says, yes, it is perfectly true, but he forestalls it, he says, do not ask me to do that for you, because I don't have that capacity. 
at which the question could be what you, Ramana Maharishi, you claim you have seen God and you cannot talk to some dead spirits like that's much less how come that you have gone to the top of the pyramid of the universe but you left a lot of things not sorted out unfinished along the way that's again and again the erroneous concept by which people mix up enlightenment with cities and manifested accomplishments in which they think that if you get one you are going to get the other Remember, Ramakrishna was enlightened and died of a cancer in his throat. And Ramana Maharishi was enlightened and he died of a cancer in his elbow. And the list could continue. No, so therefore you can say, what, these people who are great yogis, they couldn't even heal a cancer. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? So it's because people always expect that wisdom and the condition of being a sage comes together with a package deal of powers to walk on water and it's not true. The power to walk on water can be attained without being wise like Jesus and you can be wise like Jesus and not be able to walk on water. Those are completely different accomplishments, completely different branches of the tree. And because of this, as I was saying, in Shambhala, in the 150,000 beings, enlightened beings, plus a lot of others which are there together with them uh, some of these enlightened beings are like Ramana Maharishi and they can't move a pin with their telekinetic powers because they don't have any telekinetic powers and some of them like Milarepa can materialize their body and dematerialize it they can move mountains they can raise the dead from their graves and they can do pretty much whatever they want because some of them have extraordinary gigantic mental powers. And since Shambhala is a cartel of 100,000 enlightened beings, it's like all for one and one for all. If one can do it, they can do it for the others, like it's a brotherhood. And therefore, those who can do it for those who still cannot. And thus, Shambhala, by pooling resources in this way, has access to pretty much anything which the great enlightened beings have had. And it's not only about spirituality. And that's why generally we are being told that Shambhala has arranged in such a way so as to have some conduits, some channels, some communications to the planet Earth. Shambhala did not get contented just with being like floating enlightened spirits 20 meters above the ground in a cloud, you know, a cloud of 100,000 Buddhas but being like completely separated. After all, you'd expect that the Shambhala people, at least some of them are very pragmatical, very intelligent, very powerful, and they would want efficiency in the mission which they have assumed. And in this mission, of course, efficiency would be increased if they had direct channels of communication with the earth. Like the three mages that came to confirm the birth mm -hmm. of Christ, are reputed to have been from Shambhala. And they came physically. Like how did three spirits from Shambhala come on donkeys, like physical persons, and brought physical gifts to Jesus, and then they went back, God knows where, and they were never heard of again. So it's like we are talking about the fact that Shambhala can materialize some of its envoys and voice 
and dematerialize them back, and therefore that they are channels of communication. Shambhala is famed that in time it kept one main channel of communication, a sort of an outpost. Imagine Shambhala like a top which the kids are spinning on a table, and that top when it spins on the table is quite thick in the place where it spins and heavy and big, but it touches the table in just one point at the tip of that top where it touches the table. That tip of the top is a sort of a point of communication. It would be an, a sas, it would be an opening, it would be a, a trap door between a door in the floor, if you want to follow the name of a movie, to a, a door between the two worlds. And that door is not natural, it's kind of created by the power of the mind. So Shambhala has been famed for having a channel with humanity, which was always kept secret because they never wanted neither military tyrants to feel provoked and to try to go and do some challenge, or the ignorant to just come and uh, throw rotten tomatoes or write graffiti on the walls of uh, that place. And that's why, of course, it has always been kept very esoteric. As people who have listened to our bigger Shambhala lectures, such outposts are supposed to have been somewhere in today's northern Scandinavia, the so-called Hyperborea, in Ireland, in Atlantis, in Egypt, Black Sea area, today's northern Tibet or Gobi. So it has moved, exactly like the top, if you spin it, it moves on the surface, this projection, but it has not moved chaotically like a top does. It has moved by a certain design that uh, those were the areas which were most appropriate in those given times. It is said until today that this outpost existed in the Gobi, northern Tibet, until the communist invasion, and that it was withdrawn after the communist invasion, so it will not produce any uh, further conflict. And uh, again, where it would be today, if there is one today, if it is kept permanent or only at some hours or moments open or not, where it is, that is, of course, one of the very well-guarded secrets of this spiritual doctrine, precisely for the reasons which have been said before. There are, for example, urban legends, which some people are contesting seriously, that the American Navy got to hear about one of these in some islands or areas in Antarctica, of all places, after the Second World War and after the Chinese invasion of Tibet, and they tried to attack that place with an aircraft carrier, and they lost all the airplanes in 30 seconds by forces which are not known. There's a famous commander of the U.S. Navy called Admiral Baird, who apparently wrote these things, and they have been published posthumously, and some people are contesting the accuracy, and of course, being military history, it's not yet made public, and thus we don't know for sure if they are just urban legends or not, but uh, it's a fact mm -hmm. that history has recorded that there is a channel of contact. Well, coming back to the Easter of the Gentle Ones, apparently in the older days, when there was less of this scientific survey, not so much satellites and uh, street cams and stuff like this, uh, and the society was more based on legends and hearsay, 
there was a general tradition in Europe, especially, that these guardians of humanity, they live up in the mountains, in places where are not being touched. It's exactly like the famous conflict with uh, Mount Olympus, that the ancient Greeks believed that their gods, Zeus and Hera and Hermes and all the rest, they lived on Mount Olympus. And uh, even if they were tempted to challenge that, they did not challenge it because they were upset, they were afraid to upset the gods. And then, of course, when atheism became a stronger trend in the world, some peasant, some uh, atheistic peasant, definitely must have climbed Mount Olympus and set foot on it and said, ah, it's nothing, the gods are bullshit, you know, it's like, what gods? You know, it's just a superstition. It doesn't mean that there hasn't been a spiritual influence there and some forces were not materializing or doing some things. But it's like a hide-and-seek game with God and with the invisible worlds. If you go there like a skeptical person, you know, children apparently can see fairies, but adults who look for, they don't. The fairies are hiding from the eyes of the curious. That's, again, a European folk tradition that uh, still in some of the northern forests of Norway or Sweden, you can still find fairies if the forests are virgin, like unvisited by human beings, because human beings spoil it. They go there to just challenge these things. Wolfgang, Johann Wolfgang Goethe, the great German writer and philosopher, even said it in his beautiful way, that it is not the spirits of nature that are dead, it is our hearts that are dead. There exists a very beautiful documentary made some 20 years ago in Iceland. It's uh, made by a Frenchman, so the title is usually quoted in French. It's called La Recherche du Monde Invisible, the, in the research of invisible worlds, where they give all these folk beliefs from Iceland, which is kind of behind Europe. It's more primitive. The civilization didn't get there so much. So, percentually, in the Icelandic population, there are many, many percents of the Iceland's population who still believes in trolls and elves and fairies and spirits. And they say there is one living there behind that rock, so you shouldn't go there and disturb it, or something like that. Of course, they're not, they are not visible. So um, what I'm trying to say is that in Europe there existed this spiritual tradition, this mystical tradition, undemonstrable scientifically, that the people of Shambhala and generally the spiritual guides, uh, they, were pre they were keeping a presence in the high mountains, like in the top of the high mountains. For example, in Mount Athos in Greek, there is a tradition that Mount Athos and the Eastern Christianity is protected by seven very big monks, by seven very enlightened monks who have achieved the kingdom of heaven and the grace of God. They are still in their physical body, so they didn't pass away. And they live on the topest, in the, in the highest areas of Mount Athos. They can make themselves invisible at will, as well as their huts. They can appear and disappear. If they consider that somebody has spiritual grace and mm -hmm. deserves, they will allow themselves occasionally seen, because sometimes people climb on Mount Athos just as a, a sort of a spiritual tourism and then they say, funny, when I got really high up there, I saw an old man with a white long beard who was living in a hut. And then people say, there's nobody there. You must have seen one of the seven great ones. 
and that when one of them passes away, then they take the next spiritual one, they invite another one, and thus there is a cartel of seven on Mount Athos, and they all live in the mountains, like uh, there is this subjective feeling that the spirituality is above, because of Sahasrara, right? Because of the spiritual things being related with the upper part of the human body, and uh, therefore the same about Shambhala. Shambhala, or the representatives of Shambhala, I'm going to come back to that in a minute, they are in the mountains. And uh, I even saw folk tradition in Eastern Europe, in which people quoted and they said that one week after Easter, they found red eggs, these painted eggs, which are typical for Easter, they found the shells of red eggs in the creeks, in the streams of water in the mountains. So obviously they were coming from the upper upper part, from the upstream, but they said there is no village upstream, there is nobody living, as far as we know it's just some deserted mountains up there, where did these eggshells come from? And their opinion was the gentle ones are one week later celebrating Easter. That's why for us, for, Sham, for Agama here, this is a wonderful opportunity to celebrate a little bit with Shambhala. If Shambhala is in a moment of joy, we want to align with them, we want to reconnect with them. We do many meditations with Shambhala. We used to have some regular weekly meditations with Shambhala. Here in Agama, we do special Shambhala meditations and the Christmas and New Year retreat. And on other various occasions where it is opportune, where it is pertinent, I am definitely going to make a Shambhala meditation at the opening of the Olympic Games, for example, this year, because that will be in an event viewed by more than 2 billion people, so you can be sure that Shambhala will be telepathically present there. I explained in some other lectures, workshops, what is the story with this public event. Even in the Christmas and New Year retreat, I have explained why we yogis feel that we can use this collective energy in this mass event, which are happening on planet Earth. And um, therefore... For us, uh, all these urban legends, all this folklore about the gentle ones, uh, they are a wonderful opportunity to remember Shambhala, to meditate with Shambhala. That's why on Sunday at 12 o'clock, I hope it is in the program, if not, the administration will realize they may have forgotten to put it there, but I'm sure it is. There is a, the Easter of the gentle ones, which is actually a Shambhala meditation, the gentle ones, are Shambhala or their representatives. Now, how exactly much Shambhala is on the tops of the mountains and when and how? You know, if you go to, for example, Sinai, to the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, that's where there is the famous mm -hmm. Mount Sinai, where Moses encountered no less than God himself and received the tablets of the law. And there are many, many rules at the monastery, St. Catherine Monastery, which is down there, about when you can and when you shouldn't climb on Mount Sinai, because sometimes the top of the mountain is reserved for some of the spiritual entities. And if you go there like a stupid tourist or something, you risk to get in trouble. And they quote lots of cases where people died or they lost their way or they lost their mind or something simply because they are barging into some things which were not for their 
um, level. And thus, uh, again, these legends according to which on the mountains uh, there is something, they refer to this contact with uh, spirituality. And of course, humanity has been uh, in its history guided, and it has chosen to be guided by many spiritual influences. Different animistic African or uh, Australian communities or different shamanic communities from all over the world or different monotheistic religions or polytheistic religions like I mentioned the Greek mysteries and others. They chose to let themselves guided, to allow themselves guided by different spirits and entities. A typical one which I just mentioned in the angel workshop not long time ago was that many of these more simple primitive cultures, they want themselves guided by the ancestors. Now the ancestors, some of them are nice, some of them are not so nice. As you know, in a village you'll find lovely people, you'll find jerks as well. No, there's a mixture. So all of them become the ancestors. So the ancestors are a very assorted bunch of spirits. Some of them higher, some of them lower, which reflects the human environment. The ancestors are just humans that don't sleep because they are dead and they don't need sleep. They are humans that can see you all the time. They are humans endowed with a certain level of clairvoyance because they are in between two lifetimes. They are in their astral body. They exist as spirits. Some people would use the word ghosts, but I prefer not to because technically that refers to a peculiar uh, category. And thus, um, of course you can be helped by the spirits of the dead. Not as much as you would be helped by Jesus, because all your ancestors put together, they cannot do a tenth of what Jesus would be able to do. And therefore, of course, to use the, the help of the ancestors is a rather primitive, childish uh, approach because the ancestors are not really the strongest and best thing that you can refer to. You can refer to different spirits of the nature. But again, the spirits of the nature, compared with a hundred thousand Buddhas from Shambhala, are not making even one thousandth of it. Like all the spirits of the nature put together cannot do what Milarepa alone can do. And that's why um, it's, there is a proportion always but this proportion depends very much on the rich. Like, you cannot expect that some people from some Central African tribe are going to refer to Milarepa, because they've never heard of Milarepa, they've never had a Milarepa in their culture, and therefore they refer to whatever they have been taught in their culture, according, so there are people who follow their uh, lineages of initiation in this way, and every culture has its ups and downs, and sometimes some of these helpers of humanity are not completely disinterested. For example, in Europe there exist many traditions where young, handsome men have been kidnapped by the fairies for 30 years and used as drones, used as, multiply, used as sexual slaves, basically. And then they were returned to their village and they didn't get one day older. Like, they simply reappeared in a village 50 years later and they hadn't lost a day of their lives. And when they were asked where they have been, they said, I have been in the forest with some beautiful women. And they couldn't remember anything more. So wait a second. Somebody will say, 
Is that politically correct? Those fairies, they kidnap somebody. You know, if they can, they do it. And that's, you, you can't punish them. You cannot uh, account them for it. So these uh, invisible helpers of humanity are of many kinds. If you are thinking that, for example, the Greeks or the Vikings of Scandinavia, they were praying to their gods. Either you call them Thor and uh, Odin and uh, the like, the Freya and so on, or you call them uh, Zeus and uh, Hermes and the likes. These uh, gods, actually the legends of Mount Olympus or the Scandinavian legends, they do not describe the gods as perfect. On the contrary, the gods have sometimes very big egos. If you offend them, they can punish you exceedingly. They are uh, having ulterior motives, like they, you know, like Zeus, for example, is a total womanizer. He just goes and seduces woman after woman, and her wife gets jealous and punishes them, and it's a whole mess. It's a whole mess. It's an, it's, an, it's an ugly story. It wouldn't even happen in an elegant part of your town. You know, it's like low life, what some of these gods are doing, really, when you read those legends. And some of these deities can be unreliable, like the Scandinavians say that Odin, which is Hermes, is the Mercurian god, the day, the god of Wednesday, is uh, typically unreliable, promises, doesn't do it, helps you for six months, then he drops you suddenly, whimsically, and so on. So it's like, none of these gods sounds even as a tenth like Jesus or like Gautama Buddha, you know. It's like, they are not enlightened, they are not 100% moral and ethical. They seem like they are very, very powerful and they can click their fingers and do things. But when Prometheus brought light to the humans... Prometheus was not a god, but a titan, uh, one of the adversaries. They punished Prometheus really badly. They chained him to a stone, and the vulture was coming and eating his liver every day, like perpetual agony, just because he gave the fire to the human beings. And the human beings became too smart too quickly, and the gods could not uh, abuse them enough. You know, they, the human beings became a little bit too smart and too independent. It's a game of power. So, so many spirits and helpers of humanity, <coughs> they are at levels where they require a compensation. They are at levels which are levels of ego. And therefore, this is where this connection with Shambhala comes in very beautifully. Because the Shambhala people... They are enlightened. Being enlightened, they have lost the dominance of the ego. Like, they can mm -hmm. have a sense of humor, and I guess they can be doing even practical jokes if they consider it appropriate, because they are free, but they will not be governed by the ego. Like, anybody who gets in touch with Shambhala will not get manipulated for an ulterior motive. Like Shambhala may have a motive, like this person will serve to this purpose in history, and they are not even going to be told what purpose they will serve, because they are not wise enough to understand and to mock in. But still the final purpose, even if it's a manipulation, the final purpose is a good one. The final purpose is something which God will applaud. 
and said, good job, Shambhala, you did the right thing. And therefore, Shambhala is at the level of spirituality, morality, ethics, which is allowing them to be above the safety limit. And that's why the contact with Shambhala is one of the spiritual contacts which in the most exacting forms of metaphysics is considered legitimate. Like if any one of you wants to worship Zeus, I as your guru have the duty to tell you be careful because Zeus is tricky. He's strong, he's generally good, but he's not an enlightened being. Zeus is not like Ramakrishna. Zeus can have ulterior motive. If you meditate with Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna will never have ulterior motives or anyway, not ulterior motives of a selfish kind. Ramakrishna himself compared this situation, saying that sometimes a mother, to determine her reluctant child to take a bitter Ayurvedic medicine, sugarcoats it, or promises candies. If you take these drops, I shall give you chocolate. That's manipulation. But it's a loving, positive manipulation in which the mother knows that the child does not have the discrimination and the self-discipline and the willpower of an adult to take a bitter medicine out of its own will. So it needs to be helped a little bit, even if that help is a bit of a white lie and is a bit of a manipulation. If it comes from the heart, it's considered to be okay. So, Ramakrishna might give you some white lie from his heart, and the final result will be that eventually, you will be more happy, eventually you will be more spiritual, eventually you will be more emancipated, and in the big picture, you would say, thank you, thank you Ramakrishna, thank you. I needed it, thank you for doing it to me, it was exactly what I needed. You knew better. So in the same way, I'm not completely wanting to bullshit you with some Svadhisthanistic romantic story that Shambhala is a sort of a fairy tale-ish thing and so on. Shambhala, people have strong Manipuras, strong Ajnas, and uh, they kick ass for the Lord, as somebody said some, sometime. That simply says everything they do is subordinated to their spiritual job. That is, of course, a very dangerous concept. As you know, it resulted in many abuses in the history of humanity. And that's, of course, that's one of the biggest things in considering Shambhala uh, in the light of what it actually is and what it actually does. Uh, this being said, therefore, Shambhala represents a legitimate spiritual contact. That's why here in Agama, when people want to do Mahavidya Yoga, when people want to connect with angels, when people want to connect with Shambhala, we are okay with all of it. Because all these three things which I mentioned, and perhaps a few others which I didn't, they represent legitimate forms of spiritual contact, which will not deviate you from the path to yourself, from the path to the spirit, from the path to the realization. Shambhala, more than that, because I said earlier that I'll come back to this, Shambhala contains, according to the spiritual history, Shambhala contains also spiritual contact 
which is not literally part of Shambhala. They will be like postulants. Exactly as in a monastery, you can have postulants, but the postulants are a little bit outside of the monastery, and they are still on a trial. Like, they will be postulants for a year or two, and if they are accepted, then they can become novices. They can become young practitioners in the monastery. Exactly like this, on the thresholds of Shambhala, there are postulants. These postulants are spirits which are almost enlightened and which are very, very skillful in karma yoga and in kind of surrendering to the will of God. They are people who want to serve Shambhala. They say, we are on the same page with you. Our Sahasrara is not as big as your Sahasrara. Maybe even our Ajna is not as big as your Ajna. But we want to be of service. Exactly as we in spirit in Agama, when we do the New Year meditation, we invoke Shambhala to be of use. Not because of a utilitarian attitude, because all the people of Agama put together cannot do meditation as strong as one-tenth of the meditation of a good one from Shambhala. So it's not that like, oh, I matter, I make a difference. It's more like an act of goodwill. It's more like saying, I'm offering. Look, it's on my record. Every new year, I offered myself to Shambhala time and again. You know, that's what I do. That's what I want to be. So maybe when I die... Shambhala will take me in their gang. Maybe when I die, I'll be somewhere there on the doorstep of Shambhala. So in this way, there is not only Shambhala per se, there is also a Shambhala retinue, a Shambhala congregation, an outer Shambhala congregation. And those are the ones which are called the superiores ignotes, the unknown superiors. Like between Shambhala and humanity, there is something which Alice Bailey has called by the name the hierarchy, a hierarchy of spirits which are uh, serving Shambhala. So Shambhala doesn't need always to go directly and sort out something. They can send a message to their gophers. They have their own gophers, and the gophers or Shambhala are the SI, the superiores ignotes, which are mentioned in many, many mystical traditions as beings of a great spiritual integrity, of a great spiritual purity, that are like the angels of Shambhala, mm. exactly as the angels serve God, the superiores ignotes serve Shambhala. They are sort of um, servants of Shambhala. And that's why when we speak about the Easter of the gentle ones, and the fact that there seem to be high spirits in almost every community, in almost every geographical area, in almost around villages and places and uh, settlements and so on, uh, this will be not Shambhala directly, but they will be the SI, the superiores ignotes, the unknown superiors, uh, who have a very strong resonance on Vishuddha chakra. There is something very pure about them. Uh, usually Vishuddha Chakra creates in the human beings this uh, fanaticism, this kind of puritanism that I want to serve God, 
I want to serve the servants of God, the saints of God. I want to serve Shambhala. And uh, that is the story of this um, meditation, of this Sunday meditation, that we align with the unknown superiors and with Shambhala. Again, not because we want to offer something, except of the fact that we want to offer our sympathy. We want to offer our, some of us at least, our allegiance. Like we are on the same page. One day we hope to be one of you. One day we go there. The Tibetans being so called, so close to Shambhala and having the most direct contact with Shambhala in the last 1000 years or more, uh, they have even developed uh, yoga, the famous Kala Chakra, methods, mantras, visualizations for developing a process in which after death you will be connected with Shambhala. And thus, uh, these are things which we do a lot in Agama, because for us, Shambhala is a legitimate spiritual contact, not a deviation. And that's why meditating with Shambhala and at various occasions like this coming Sunday, as well as initiating people in the Kala Chakra Tantra when they go in their Chakra Tapas program here in Agama, they are all um, things which we do with a certain reverence towards Shambhala. Um, remember, reverence towards spiritual things is not easy to acquire. We have had many examples, <clears throat> and we see many examples, in which when some spiritual things are implemented, then uh, people react from their ego. Like, you could see it, even let's give the perfect example of Jesus. Jesus was not always milk and honey. Sometimes Jesus was really bitter and really howling at people and calling people hypocrites, wolves, snakes, like calling them names and telling them that their spirituality is false and histrionic, and it is a hypocrisy, and it is actually not the real thing. And people being scolded by Jesus, instead of, you know, Jesus told them, don't, don't look at the straw in the eye of your brother. Look at the beam in your eye. Like there is a much, much bigger thing in you, and you all constantly point fingers and others. Stop pointing fingers. Stop judging other people. Start with yourself. Jesus even said, don't judge so that you won't be judged. He said, whoever judges will be judged. And thus, what I'm trying to say here is that Jesus himself, when he pointed fingers, because he could he, from where he was, uh, when he pointed, because he, was, he had a warrant to do so, in the moment when he did that, most of the people actually got bitter and irritated. There are very few people who said, Oh my God, you saw through me. Tears are coming to my eyes. Please forgive me. Very few people had the heart and the humility to actually admit, to acknowledge that Jesus was right. Because if Jesus was God, then definitely he was right. He couldn't be wrong an iota. 
nothing could be wrong in what he said. And still, people, when snapped back at him, people called him a blasphemer. Uh, many, many, devil, the devil working through him and so on, because it meant exposing their own flaws. So when it comes to exposing one's own flaws, people are defending it very, very well. And the same thing is happening with Shambhala. No? In the Christian prayers, which Christians, most of you seem to be Caucasian. So you come from, your DNA comes from Europe. And therefore your ancestors were Christian 600 years ago. Most of you, again, it doesn't matter if they weren't. Because whoever you are, we can trace the line still to something similar. And the Christians for 2,000 years have said, May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is the will of God done on earth? Like when people are electing George W. Bush to be president, should a lightning come out of the heavens and char him into ashes because the man doesn't deserve to be a leader of hundreds of millions of people? Is the will of God done? Obviously, when we look at how much violence and ugliness and injustice and how many devilish things are happening, obviously the will of God is not done, because otherwise Jesus wouldn't have said, wouldn't have asked for it. It's obviously that it's not happening since you have to pray for it. May your will be done on earth. So the will of God is not done. Even Jesus, when he is about to be crucified, he calls the devil, Satan, the prince of this world. In the Latin Bible, Princeps Huius Mundi, the prince of this world. The prince of this world is not Jesus. The prince of this world is not God. The prince of this world in Kali Yuga is the devil. And thus, if Shambhala is on the other side of the barricade, if Shambhala is on Jesus' side of the barricade, then sometimes the teachings of Shambhala and the things of Shambhala they are not popular. No? If somebody, the king of Thailand, which is called Dharma Raja, Dharma Raja, which means Dharmic king, religious king. The king of Thailand is the, the origin of a law which says there is no selling of alcohol between 2 and 5 o'clock and after 12 o'clock at night. To try to keep the Thai nation away from alcoholism. It's a semi-prohibition law to try to keep the Thais from not drinking their brains off. Guess what? All the lonely planets and the guides are bitterly nagging at it. Thailand would be a wonderful country if there wouldn't be this shit with the booze. Because everybody wants to come and shitface themselves. No? Like what? I don't suffer that they don't sell booze because I don't drink it. Therefore, it's not an issue for me. They can stop selling booze 100% if they want. I won't complain about it. It won't spoil my stay in Thailand for a day. No? But because I'm not interested in that. And that's why the problem is that people are interested into a lot of things which are not okay. And then if the will of God would be done, if the kingdom of heaven would descend on earth, all those people would be like this. Try to go to Amsterdam or to Holland and to stop the sale of marijuana. You'd get a cold turkey nation in one week. 
right? Everybody says, oh, drugs, drugs. You're kidding. Everybody is smoking marijuana. Even in Agama, many people are smoking and they think I don't know. You know, and it's like, and sometimes I can smell it when I'm going around. You know, I have a very fine nose. So it's like, what are you, if, if Jesus would be here with a lightning bolt, and every time you'd smoke marijuana, you'd get zapped, you'd start hating Jesus. That would be the problem. That the demonic influences, they don't repent. And they say, sorry, my bad. I'm going to become a good person now. No. They prefer to strike back with grudge. And that's why it's the same with Shambhala. If Shambhala would tell you that many of the liberties of the modern society or many of the actions of the modern society are wrong and shouldn't be done anymore, many people will get irritated and go. They would not like Shambhala anymore. If Shambhala would tell something against homosexuality, or if Shambhala would simply tell you that the Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran is the most appreciated spiritual entity on earth by Shambhala, suddenly you'd hate Shambhala and you'd throw rotten tomatoes at Shambhala, because how can this be? Problem is that people imagine that Shambhala is obliged to play their game and to tell them what they want to hear. Instead of looking around and seeing that the world is in a very bitter place and a lot of things are not the way they are supposed to be. And that's why it's very easy to give lip service and to say this Shambhala that Swami keeps talking about, it's a very nice idea. But what if Shambhala would be like the Spanish Inquisition? Suddenly you wouldn't love them so much anymore. I would. I would, just in case you want to leave Agama soon, I would. Yeah, That's why I'm saying, here it depends how much, how far are you willing to go. Like, what is really Shambhala, and what means thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? What is the true will of God, and who fulfills mm. the will of God? Indeed. Again, when you go to Jesus, when you go to others like him, you find that they are very exacting. And thus, this Shambhala issue is always a very provocative issue because um, many people don't understand how far can one go into the spiritual things. Is the Spanish Inquisition right or wrong? Because if you read the documents of the Spanish Inquisition, they were trying to save souls. They're honest to God. They were trying to save souls. They thought that if people die in sin, they go to hell. And if they burn them, they will repent them. And then they will go to purgatory for a short time. And then they will make it to paradise. Those people really believed they were saving souls. Today, the Spanish Inquisition is the boogeyman, is the horror figure of history. And they are supposed to be completely absurd, ridiculous and... If you read them, you say, right, you know, but it can't be that way. You know, it's like it's unacceptable, simply. I personally do not have a sympathy towards the Spanish Inquisition, by the way of what I said earlier. I simply said that I have a sympathy for Shambhala and for total spirituality. And thus, this issue with Shambhala is difficult to fathom 
like your sympathy, how much your sympathy goes to Shambhala. I can show you books, there are books written in French and English, which says that the Tibetans of the Dalai Lama were fighting along with Hitler and they died in Berlin when the Russians came in. So why were the Tibetans sympathetic of Hitler rather than of Winston Churchill? And the Tibetans were supposed to be very Shambhala close or something. Did they deviate actually? Or was Hitler closer to Shambhala than Churchill and Roosevelt? These are almost historical heresies to say. And yet, the issue is being raised. And the issue, I'm raising it not because I want to do a conspiracy theory lecture, but because I want to say this. Sometimes it's very difficult to fathom where the spiritual truth resides, as it was in the case with Jesus and with many others. The Hindus hated Buddha. When Buddha came and told them, your caste system sucks and you can flush it down the toilet, the Hindus hated him totally. They still hate him. Today, Buddhism is not very sympathized in India. And the people who become Buddhist in India today, there are millions of them, they are coolies. They are the low caste. Because in India, nobody gives them anything. And then it's better to be Buddhist than to belong to the lowest caste of Hinduism. They change religion. But they change religion simply because they come from the most oppressed caste in Indian society, in Hindu society. And thus, even Buddha, who was compassionate and wise and measured, and he was hated. There were kings that tried to assassinate him. A couple of times, there were people who tried to murder Buddha. The gentle, peaceful Buddha, they tried to murder him because he was speaking his spiritual truth fearlessly in that way. And the history could continue. Even Socrates was not an enlightened being, but a very wise man. He was asked politely to drink poison and go to hell. No, because he was too inconvenient in Athens. They couldn't live with Socrates, because Socrates was pointing the finger to everybody's hypocrisy, and he said, what a bunch of liars and hypocrites you are every day. You keep on hiding under beautiful words, and this is the truth, this is the truth, this is the truth. This is a, and people ask him to drink poison. People didn't say, okay, Socrates, you are right. We are going to become better human beings and correct us. No. It's easier to poison the bastard. Like they crucified Jesus. No, it's better for one man to die than for a whole nation to have to change themselves. And thus, the story with Shambhala is that Shambhala are sitting in the place of Buddha, Milarepa and Jesus. And uh, they come from another dimension, they come from another place of spirituality and that's why I'm saying not everybody is so eager to go to Shambhala. Going to Shambhala or being with Shambhala, first of all you need to surrender. You need to truly surrender to the will of God and to simply say I'm going to endorse the views of Jesus and Buddha and this even if they are not comfortable for my ego and even if they say that my mother goes to hell and my father is whatever, I'm with Shambhala. I have my sympathy, my allegiance is 100% to the spiritual principles and to Shambhala. That's why Shambhala knows that not everybody is a superior unknown. Not everybody is part of the hierarchy. Not everybody is prepared to serve. Indeed, there was an attempt which is lodged in the national libraries of 
Russia, in which Shambhala actually wrote, people from Shambhala wrote physical, a physical message to Lenin, to Lenin of all people. And they told him, your initiative to stop the oppression of the masses by the abusive rich is very good. We, the people from Shambhala, sympathize with that. Please keep your ways clean and so on. Later, of course, Lenin and Stalin and these guys, they became monsters and they started killing people and creating this absurd communism and so on, which they created. That, of course, didn't please Shambhala. But in the beginning, Shambhala even had the hope that even a man like Lenin can be guided on a soft path. You know, like, be, we, we like the fact that you, like Jesus, sympathize with the masses. You can be a savior. You know that if some of you, I'm sure, have traveled through China, and probably you have seen that in many Chinese temples, Taoist temples and others, besides the pictures of the Buddhas and others, there is the photo of Mao Zedong. Mao is a photo in Chinese temples. He's becoming a Buddha for the Chinese. And he's a murderer who committed, who was at the we had the forefront of the cultural revolution that killed between 50 to 100 million people. And the Chinese venerate Mao. And when I was there some, I don't know, five, six years ago, they had photos of Deng Xiaoping or whatever his name was with Vladimir Putin everywhere. These were their heroes. So the values can be very different from one part of the world to another. And... Again, establishing where the divine truth is, is a very, is a very tricky story. And that's why Shambhala is also a very fundamental idea, that there exist enlightened beings, but are we willing to live like them? Are we willing to align ourselves with them? There are people who come to a yoga school, although a tantric and very liberal one in modern days, there would be people who would go and visit a monastery or an ashram for a week or for a month, and some would love it. Some would say, I felt at home. That's where I want to spend the rest of my life. And some would hate it. Some would say, it was the most boring time of my life because they didn't have a cafe. They didn't have a disco. I couldn't watch porn. I couldn't do this, I couldn't play computer games, I couldn't do this and that. So the question is, how much are we willing to align with full-on spirituality? Where Shambhala, for many people, is too much, simply. It would drive them nuts. And for the people who love God a bit fanatically, with intensity... Shambhala is the dream place. Shambhala is, yes, and you can admit and say, well, I myself, if I would go to Shambhala, probably I would feel some pressure, you know, because I'm not that 100% aligned. But I would be willing to make the efforts and the 10, 20%, which still doesn't fit, to kind of correct it quickly, to adjust it. And I would fit in, in that kind of reality in that kind of world. This is how you think about Shambhala. These are very important issues of thinking about Shambhala. 
on this Sunday we give you the music which we classically use. We meditate with that music. And of course I'm going to say a few words before for the people who haven't been here tonight and don't know much about Shambhala and these things. And we will work on Ajna Chakra because the best contact with Shambhala is achieved through Ajna Chakra. And those of you who have love of Shambhala, download the lectures which Agama has uploaded. There are about five hours of lecture on Shambhala, much more in detail than this. And join the Agama Shambhala meditations whenever you see them on the timetable of Agama. And uh, stay in Agama until you can learn the Kala Chakra initiation and you can get your personal practice with Shambhala. And in this way, uh, this is always a subject which is um, challenging in a divisive way because, you know, everybody can say, oh, no, but I love Jesus. Yeah, I love Jesus, you know. But then whatever I do in my private life, it's my own business. And uh, my love for Jesus is not would not be measured by anything. While this story with Shambhala is a more concrete thing, it refers to something human, ultimately, and which is close to us, and it challenges us more. You know, if somebody would dematerialize us today and dump us into Shambhala, will it be hell for us, or will it be paradise regained, found again? And thus, uh, Shambhala meditations and the approach of Shambhala is very, very much about this more personal contact with Shambhala. To sum up what I have said, the European folklore claims that unknown superiors, messengers of God, messengers of Shambhala, live on the borderlines of our civilization. Unseen, unknown, it is the law of God, which is completely observed by the spiritual entities, that they practice 99.99% a policy of non-intervention, of hiding, of not trying to convince or show off in any way. And because of this, this uh, story of Shambhala, which is thousands of years old in the history of the earth, continues like it's still controversial, non-demonstrable, even those who know more precise things about it, they won't speak about some of those things because they don't need to be demonstrated. Shambhala doesn't have any desire to make itself known to you. If you knock at their door, they will answer. First, more discreetly, trying to see how far does your conviction goes. And if you insist and insist, then they will start opening their doors. Shambhala is recruiting, and some of you in this hall will be recruits of Shambhala in the end of your spiritual life in this lifetime. For some of you, maybe it's not the time right now, but remember that Shambhala is a very dear idea in the human spirituality, because it means that the men and the women who made it to the top, they didn't turn their back on us. They are still somewhere around with us, with compassion, with wisdom, with love. They wish to help. They wish you were part of their gang, if your heart tells you so. 
and they, therefore the door is open for everybody who has the sincerity for communicating with Shambhala. This Sunday, you will have the opportunity to get a resonance, to get a feeling of Shambhala relaxing, of Shambhala cheering for the resurrection of Christ and uh, having a state of spiritual joy. That joy may infect you also and you may feel the victory of Jesus as a personal victory of yourself and of each and every human being on the face of this earth. This being said, I now will conclude this satsang where I have tried to explain what the Sunday meditation is, but taking the explanations about Shambhala and the contact of the human beings with invisible spirits and entities further. Whenever you will have questions as a result of the many things which I say in the satsangs, please don't hesitate to address them to me or to the advanced teachers who are coming and doing the Q&As on Tuesdays because then they can go more in depth with some of these things. It is my intention that if everything goes as planned starting next week I'll start a series of satsangs um, in which I'm showing the yogic wisdom which is as it is delivered by the Upanishads. While most of the Upanishads of India are philosophical texts. There exists a limited number of approximately 10 Upanishads, which are actually going practically in yoga, and they are the equivalent of the yoga texts. That's why yoga does not appear only in Yoga Sutra and in Hatha Yoga Pradipika and Garanda Samhita and those. There is a very inspiring corpus of yogic teaching, which is coming from the Upanishads, which are excellent texts of the Indian spirituality. And because they are lesser known than the classical texts, I will uh, share some of those with mm. you. I will read and explain some of this Upanishadic yogic wisdom. But that will be, if everything goes as planned, next week only. With this, let us finish for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining. And I will see you in our future satsang.